unlock your mind and then you'll be free to clear your head oh yeah mm-hmm. unlock your mind you can't look back you gotta look ahead instead yeah 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 welcome to the kingless generation a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmoodlock, and I hope you're doing all right. We're getting into uh, late autumn winter territory here. The leaves are just starting to change color quite late, I think, but and it's getting, getting cold. Uh, I hope you're taking care of yourself. Take your vitamins. Uh, get extra sleep. Get the sleep that you need right? Think about your posture, you know, take a minute to breathe deeply. Focus your attention, look away from any and all screens. I have a lot, my building is actually under construction right now, so I apologize in advance for any noises. I'm going to go ahead and just ignore it, let it be more atmospherics. So today I have a topic for you that I have been working on for a long time and I had to tell myself to just stop working on it and just get something out here, which is the picaresque. The picaresque is a genre that you have, you are familiar with if you have read Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer, for example, that is in that lineage. That would be an American picaresque. And that comes through British literature and British literature like British pharmacology and like uh, British seafaring techniques and everything else comes, not coincidentally at all, from Iberian precedents, the Iberian empires of Spain and Portugal that first connected merchant capital in a global network across the world, right? And then uh, started the engine of imperialism using that enormous primitive accumulation of all that free labor uh, s- people taken as slaves from Africa, uh, people and from the Americas, and then all the resources, natural resources from the Americas, right? So immense that it, it crashed markets as far away as India, right? Uh, and then they appropriated the pre-existing networks of the Islamic world, most uh, close to home, and then China and India as well after that, of course. Very famously, you got the opium wars, you've got uh, the impoverishment of India. And so it's therefore not uh, surprising that you can find this picaresque genre, okay, um, in the Arabic world. You can find it there as well. So now the picaresque, I probably should unpack that a bit more. It's often taken as the beginning of the modern novel, modern consciousness, right? Uh, there is a lot of it in the Iberian picaresque that is kind of new uh, vis-a-vis the Inquisition and uh, the conceit of having a, a little child tell these stories. Um, well, that sort of does come actually from Muslim um, predecessors as well. But uh, one of the things that it's often imitating that is new is an inquisition report where uh, they have someone come in before the judges and sort of tell their life story and you listen and and sort of judge the person's sincerity of their reconversion to Christianity after having 
done, uh, you know, been a Muslim or, you know, they were a Jew and they renounced Judaism, but then they were caught teaching in a secret synagogue or something, right? Uh, or practicing some, some Jewish, uh, you know, Sabbath uh, observances or something, right? They would literally have, they would really have like a picture of Jesus on the wall that was made so that, it, you know, when it was time for Shabbat, they could make, turn a switch and uh, Jesus would disappear and, you know, and they would say things among themselves like, you know, I pretend outwardly to uh, believe in the superstitions about the Trinity and about, uh, you know, God becoming a man, but I know in my heart actually that God is one and, right, reaffirming uh, things from, he from Hebrew and Muslim tradition that are different, right? Uh, so that uh, maybe we should review as well the uh, expulsion of the uh, Moriscos happens in 1609, maybe, which is interesting. It's right before the great expulsion from Japan of the, the Christians. It's about the same time, right? And the end of the so-called Reconquest is 1492, the exact same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, is the fall of Al-Harnata, which we know today as Granada in Spain. And at first, there's a lot of kind of liberal, uh, like assimilationist rhetoric around the Muslims in particular because they were the rulers and then also the Jews, uh, right? And the Jews are never expelled uh, if as long as they convert, right? Um, they're never expelled, but the Moriscos are ultimately ex expelled. Those are the um, former Muslims or, you know, they're identified with this racial, this growing racial category of blackness, right? And so that, uh, maybe that's part of why they're the ones who are expelled, because they come to have this, I mean, Moris, you know, uh, Moro uh, um, com uh, comes from the Greek, you know, for black, actually. And so originally it's kind of a, a racial design designation of a kind, but it doesn't have that modern racial uh, valence to it until it's combined with this moment of maybe the first ethnic cleansing, the first modern ethnic cleansing, certainly, that's still with us today in white supremacy, anti-blackness, and, and all of this. But Barbara Fuchs, one of the really foremost uh, scholars of Spanish literature and all, with respect to all of these issues, right? The romance, the picaresque that I'm learning a lot from and getting a lot of this from, uh, she has been translating a lot of these works into English. There are sort of liberal assimilationist romances that are about, you know, uh, Moorish, I will say, rather than having to pick it apart every time, uh, right, because that's just the term that is used. Uh, Moorish nobles, right, who are respectable because they're nobles and they're aristocrats and, and they're educated and they belong to secret societies uh, using, you know, the hold, upholding the ideals of Futuat, uh, which I also want to get into. Futuat is uh, chivalry, Muslim chivalry, basically, and... Uh, 100% European chivalry comes from that, and they don't hide it at all at the time, right? It's only later that, you know, chivalry becomes this thing, even Anglo-American industrialists hold, uphold chivalry as the reason why they can be uh, a good ruling class and, and so on, you know? And that's why the 
Rockefellers collect uh, medieval art and donate, you know, whole Gothic cathedrals to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and all of this. Well, th everything from like the belt in the initiation ceremony to the color green in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, uh, the Arthurian legends, uh, so many details here. This is taken from Muslim Futuwat. We can maybe even get into uh, the main classic that survives from that tradition, which is uh, Futuat Nama Sultani, which I have. Uh, but so for today, though, we're doing the picaresque, right? Um, the picaresque, it, the the Spanish one, right? A big innovation is that it's based on these testimonies of your life that you would have to give in front of the Inquisition. You know, the the very first one is is called uh, Lazarillo de Tormes. La vida de Lazarillo de Tormes. And he, you know, this, his, the hero is this young boy who begins by addressing, uh, you know, Vuestra uh, Merced, your, your mercy, your grace, which is how you would address a judge that was listening to your life story and trying to decide if you were a sincere and respectable and good Christian, uh, or at least respectable enough to not have to, you know, be punished uh, anymore than you already were, right? Uh, so that's kind of new, but uh, the basic tradition is is found in the Muslim world, and this goes back to the. I mean, it's a proto-bourgeoisie. This is the roots of the bourgeoisie. This is one. This is my little thesis. I think I'll come out and say right now. Um, this is the roots of the bourgeoisie in merchant capital in the Silk Road world. You have Indian influences, Chinese influences. Um, well, I don't think I, I can't say Chinese influences. I can't point to anything. Uh, but I can point to lots of Indian things, uh, right? And that would connect to a bigger historiographical issue as well, which is that Muslim science and technology and everything was also uh, indispensable for everything that the Europeans did in the age of exploration and the conquests and the rape and pillage and everything that they did there. Right. You know, I've had to I, I have I said this, I, I've been editing the I was editing the English translation part for a, uh, a pretty important book, uh, I will say. Uh, and uh, I had I pointed out that the original essay of, of a friend of mine, actually, they were saying they mentioned the compass and the canon and movable type printing the printing press as three European inventions that made the Age of Exploration possible and the Renaissance and everything. And I had to, had to say, okay, all three of those were invented in China by about the 10th century, and they passed into Europe through the Muslim world, right? So this is, this is Oriental technology here that made all of that possible. And there's a narrative, though, that things like astronomy and timekeeping, clockwork, mechanical devices, gears and water pressure, pneumatic uh, devices using air pressure, uh, you know, automata, all of these things were, you know, that, that was a tradition. It's a scientific tradition that comes from Greece. Oh, it comes from Greece, and it was just sort of kept warm by the Muslim world for a while, and then, you know, beginning with the Latin translations of Averroes and Avicenna, aren't their real names uh, Al-Rusht and Ibn Sina, 
who uh, have both been translated directly into English now, and you can read them at length now, right? But, you know, at the time, it was only you could get, oh, these Latin translations that, um, right, were produced at the frontier uh, zones of the, the Islamic world, which, you know, again, we have to rethink our whole image of what medieval Europe is. Medieval Europe is a no-man's land. It's a frontier zone. It's a place where uh, total barbarians live. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a total barbarian, uh, as you know. I think uh, uh, that's a great thing to be. However, from Hungary on to the east is the Muslim world at most times, and about half of France and then all of the Iberian Peninsula is, belongs to the Caliphate, okay? For 800 years, 800 years. And everything that we call the Middle Ages is just a time when Europe didn't have to be, happen to be doing anything, right? Uh, not that Europe was important at all during the Roman times either. You know, the Roman Empire, as soon as they could, got plugged into the Silk Road, moved the capital to the east, to Constantinople, and they didn't give a fuck about Europe, right? Nobody did. So that's the, that's the place that this is, right? Uh, but there's this narrative, right? Among, and, and we always have to see anything that is in the uh, Muslim world that is scientific and so on. Oh, it has to be just a, a reflection of the Greek tradition. But there are all these books now that are questioning that, right? Um, the, the, the main study on the Muslim sort of picaresque tradition, uh, it's controversial whether you should call it that or not. But the main study that I have been drawing on here is by a English gent by the name of Bosworth, the medieval Islamic underworld, the Banu Sasan in Arabic society and literature. And Bosworth is a very typical uh, sort of Brit. And he, <laughs> again and again, he sort of said, oh, the, w the lengths to which the human mind will go to avoid an honest day's work. And he does acknowledge some of the, the big tradition of charity and redistribution of wealth in the Muslim world, which is, uh, you know, of a completely different order from anything that ever existed in the Christian world, right? It's in the Quran about how you have to redistribute wealth at the point of inheritance and all of this. And the whole initial success of Islam was based on this new kind of community, right? I mean, you can hear a real, you know, maybe extreme uh, version of uh, Islam as a kind of anarchy, a, a kind of anarchism in a certain episode of guerrilla history, right? I think uh, Adnan Hussein has a, a student of his uh, give a, an argument for this interpretation of Islam, right? But that, so Bosworth gives credence to that and he explains that, but, you know, he's like, he definitely is very much holding it at arm's length and is like, well, they have nothing like the Protestant work ethic there. He certainly says that at one point too, right? And that's why they can have this. And, and that's part of it, you know, like it, it actually, uh, similarly to trans-egalitarian secret society cultures, which also are based on performing tricks, doing illusions, interestingly, right? Uh, however, in those societies, you often have a healthy ecosystem of all different kinds of secret societies, all different kinds of ritual groups, all different kinds of shamans and charlatans and beggars and, and so on, right? Uh, and, I, and that seems to be the case in the Muslim world as well. All right, so it isn't quite the same thing, but it's from, the, from this sort of group uh, that the bourgeoisie grows, 
the European bourgeoisie grows out of this. So this is the roots of it. Uh, this is what, um, one of the points that I want to make. Uh, they use all kinds of, there's this great synthesis of things from all over the world, right? As I mentioned, there's tons of Indian influences here, right? So that would overturn this idea that, you know, science, pharmacology, astrology, medicine, uh, this is all just the Greek tradition and the Muslims kept it warm for a while while Europe was a bit sleepy. And then in the Renaissance, the Europeans rediscovered it and fulfilled their destiny by conquering the world. Well, no, that's not the case at all. There's a lot of Persian influence. Oh, there's tons of Persian stuff too, right? Uh, that is all very much a part of it. And many of these people writing these accounts are travelers who have gone to, uh, you know, all over the world, including China, including China. I, you know, I didn't see anything particularly Chinese about the drugs they're using or about the tricks that they do or anything like that. But a lot of these authors have been to China as well as part of their, you know, um, the, the Hajj, right? You, the, one of the duties of Islam as well is to go to Mecca. And then going, in going to Mecca a lot, many, many Muslims also develop a culture of sort of tourism and going all around the world and seeing the entire known world. Many, many people, you know, that go to Mecca, like uh, Ibn Battuta, who I think I've quoted before, uh, he's from Morocco and he goes to Mecca, but he just keeps going all the way to China and back and goes to Al-Andalus and he has to watch out for um, the natives who are rampaging and robbing people and so on. So travel was fairly common and, and extensive travel. And you have all, all the things that go with that, right? Uh, lots of urban culture in different places. And this creates space for the, the ne'er-do-wells of society to sort of um, play all kinds of tricks and get together and, and manage things like begging together. And also they... Uh, are connected to various kinds of mendicant religious. This is similar to Japan. You know, you have things like the hoka. Uh, you know, there'll be public performers. There'll be charlatans. There'll be uh, charismatic preachers, right? And this is all part of this world that, uh, of which Mark Twain is certainly a very uh, apt heir. And indeed, uh, one of the real, it looks like a real achievement of translation Really, the greatest work of Arabic literature, other than the Quran itself, is the maqamat, or sessions, or seminars, or symposia, you might say. Um, it's translated as the impostures of al-Hariri, and that is in the NYU series, and it just came out. It's, in the new, it's published by New York University Press. And it's really great, but it's super challenging as well. Uh, the Arabic of it is very, very challenging, which is why it's been sort of left alone. This genre is typically full of all kinds of thieves' argot, so like secret language that only these charlatans understand among each other. And it, it this Al-Hariri has the most fun with it and has does amazing linguistic tricks like having entire stories that are acrostics. They're written, you know, they would read the same reading forwards and reading backwards, the entire story. Or they will use alternating words that use only letters that have dots versus letters that have no dots in the Arabic alphabet. 
just amazing stuff that is very hard. It's a challenge to read it in Arabic, and it would it's an extreme challenge to translate it, therefore. And so, however, what this translator has done, you know, it's, it seems like a real masterpiece of translation. Uh, they've translated it into all different styles of English, right? Which is apt, right? At this time, the Muslim world is so vast. It stretches from, like, the Philippines all the way to uh, Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain, obviously. And so you have just a tremendous variety of uses of the Arabic language and of Muslim culture, right? And this is a great blending of all of that. It's, it's uh, a great representative of that. And so in translating it into English, it's quite appropriate to do what they've done, which is that like chapter one is in the style of Mark Twain. And it's just exactly like Mark Twain. And then chapter two is in Singaporean English with like, uh, and, and there's so many notes you have to, you, I can't read it, you know. Uh, so this is something I definitely can't read with students here in Japan. Uh, a learner of English is not going to be able to follow this shit. So uh, it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's not, and, and also I was not going to get through it in time to use it on the show here. But I will get to it later, I will say. Um, what I'm actually going to do this time is the Book of Charlatans of Al-Jaubari. Al-Jaubari was uh, active in the 1210s to 1220s, would be probably when this is, uh, when this is done. And it seems to be a condensation condensation and a summary uh, and and also based on his own knowledge he claims all along uh and it, you know his positionality is very very ambiguous and interesting as he's presenting these things but his immediate predecessor here is this book called deceit disrobed and doubt dispelled of ibn shuhaid who died in 1035 and was active in al-andalus in cordoba in Spain, okay? So that, it was supposedly much larger, but it doesn't survive. So what we have here is a direct descendant of the Muslim picaresque. Literally in Spain, it's a Spanish picaresque, but in the 11th century, in when it was Al-Andalus, when it was under the caliphate. And Ibn Shuhaid is known as the Spanish Al-Jahizd, so Al-Jahiz died in 868. Um, I'm using the Christian years here in keeping with my more... Al-Jahiz wrote the Book of Misers, Al-Bukhala. And then we have Abu Dulaf, who wrote a poem, a, a beggar's poem here, which I think I'd like to start off with. Eyelids which flow with tears from prolonged forcible separation and forsaking and a heart in which painful emotion has left smoldering ember upon ember. I have tasted strong passion with its twin tastes of the sweet and the bitter, for the free noble person can only seek the way of consolation of the free and noble, especially when the greater part of his life has been spent roaming in distant lands. I have divested myself of everything, like a stem of the ben tree standing out amongst its green leaves, and I have witnessed marvels and all sorts of turns of fate. On its distant journeyings, my spirit has remained contented in straitened periods of hunger and in times of plenteous food, for I am one of the company of beggar lords. 
the confraternity of the outstanding ones, one of the Banu Sasan, and a person who has stoutly defended the group's special territory from the earliest times. And separation has kept on driving us to a remote destination, buffeted this way and that in all possible directions, just as the wind often does in the open countryside with the long sand ridges. Yet we have found it good to seize the fleeting moments in harsh times and in periods of ease. We never relent in our imbibings, nor do we ever relax in our copulations. And the sweetest way of life which we have experienced is one spent in sexual indulgence and wine drinking. For we are the lads, the only lads who really matter, on land or on sea. We exact a tax from all mankind, from China to Egypt and to Tangier. Indeed, our steeds range over every land of the world. When one region gets too hot for us, we simply leave it for another one. The whole world is ours, and whatever is in it, the lands of Islam and the lands of unbelief, alike. Hence we spend the summers in snowy lands, whilst in winter we migrate to the lands where the dates grow. We are the beggar's brotherhood, and no one can deny us our lofty pride. They are a diverse group. If you ask me about them, a knowledgeable and experienced one, like me, can give you a full information. Our company includes every person avid for copulation, for vulvas and anuses indifferently, and of our number is every person who masturbates with a swollen penis, a formidable weapon. By using his own two hands, he has become independent of any woman, whether one sexually experienced or a virgin. Hence, he has no fear of being left a widower, nor is any dowry ever demanded of him. Nor does he have to worry about being polluted by contact with menstrual impurity. Nor does he have to worry about causing a pregnancy once a woman has been purified from her courses. And our number is the feigned madman and madwoman with metal charms strung from their necks, and the ones with ornaments drooping from their ears, and with collars of leather or brass round their necks, and the one who wanders round the streets making a nuisance of himself, or who writes out talismans and charms, or who begs for money in the storyteller's circles, and then shares out the proceeds with the storyteller afterwards. And the one who holds out his arms for food, or who combs the surface of the ground for fallen coins, or who makes factitious tears flow when the weather is cold, and the one who creeps round stalls in the market, taking morsels of food, or who forces a person who has just received some money to give him a share, or who sets out begging just before dawn, and the one who imitates a festering internal wound, and the people with false bandages round their heads and sickly jaundiced faces, and the one who slashes himself, alleging that he has been mutilated by assailants, or the one who darkens his skin artificially, pretending that he has been beaten up and wounded. And so it goes on and on about different kinds of tricks. Again, uh, these catalog of, of tricks seem to be, uh, as in the case of El Jaubari, who I'm mainly going to talk about, uh, they seem to be commissioned by rulers for the purpose of sort of catching these tricks and, and not falling for them, right? El Jaubari keeps on saying, you know, wise up to these things at the end of sort of every story. There are lots of stories of alchemists cheating very rich people and or feudal rulers by uh, telling them, you know, we can produce uh, gold out of other metals by doing this elaborate thing. And they actually 
use it as a ruse to steal the the seed uh, ingredients that the rich person provides for this little science project, and then they arrange to be far away by the time they figure it out. So this would be the motivation for the patronage and the the uh, creation of this by Al Jaubery. Even though he himself often says, you know, I I knew five different ways to do that trick, and I I told that charlatan uh, that he could do his trick even better if he changed uh, this ingredient for this ingredient in the drug that he was using to make uh, his victims hallucinate in this or that way. Right. So um, it's it's a little bit unclear. You know, he's he's very much in on the joke, or he's in on this technology and stuff, but he's sharing it with you, right? This ambiguity of self-presentation, you know, like presenting yourself as one who knows about all these evil tricks, but, but you're only a good person and you're trying to help us, right? Uh, this is shared in the English picaresque, you know. There's lots of scholarship on how the British picaresque as well is, is very appealing to a middle class, a bourgeoisie that is trying to learn all these tricks, but also... Uh, you know, pretend like you're not, not to use them or anything, but it's to avoid becoming a victim of them. Of course, of course, right? As in capitalist society, as capitalist society is growing, right, everyone has to become, in a sense, the Banu Sasan. Isn't that interesting? Uh, even though the Banu Sasan sort of grows from this outcast position or lumpen position, you know, this is a, an element of nomadic uh, life, which exists in the underbelly of almost any society, right? But it represents maybe a, a certain kind of original thing. Uh, if you think about, again, uh, the, the healthy ecosystems of secret societies and ritual societies and so on that would have existed in uh, trans-egalitarian societies and uh, even before. But they survive here under these ancient empires and they survive under merchant capital, and they ultimately, in a way, get their revenge by becoming the bourgeoisie that is now eating up the entire world. So with that, let's get into some, some of these fun stories and tricks, because that's the, that's the real fun here. One of the most fun uh, is one, so we'll get into al Jaubari here. When I was in Haran in the year 613, so that's 1216 to 17, I saw one of the Banu Sasan who'd taken an ape and taught it to make salams to people, as well as tell prayer beads, use a tooth-cleaning stick, and weep. Then I watched as the ape performed an illusion no human could have pulled off. It was a Friday, and the man sent an Indian slave, smartly dressed and personable, to the mosque. On reaching the prayer niche, he laid out a handsome carpet, after which he left. At the fourth hour, the man dressed the ape in exclusive clothes of the most luxurious sort, of the kind worn by the sons of kings, and put an expensive belt round its waist. Then he perfumed the ape with perfumes of all kinds, mounted it on a mule with a saddle decorated in gold, and assigned three Indian slaves wearing the finest clothes to walk at its stirrup. The first carried its prayer mat, and the second its overshoes, while the third strutted along before it, and the ape made salams to everyone from one end of its route to the other. Once the ape reached the door of the mosque, they put the overshoes on its feet and gave it their arm, and it dismounted, the slave with the prayer mat strutting along in front, 
the ape making salams. If anyone asked who it was, he was told, This is the son of King So-and-so, one of the greatest of the kings of India, but the man is under a spell. The ape made its way like this till it came to the carpet. There the slave laid the ape's prayer mat down on the carpet and placed the prayer beads and tooth-cleaning stick in its hands. The ape now removed its clothes, pulled its handkerchief out of its cummerbund, and placed it in front of him. He's probably taking off his jacket, right? It rubbed its teeth with the stick and performed two prostrations of thanks for ablution and two of greeting to the mosque. Then it took the prayer beads and busied itself telling them, the moment it did so, the slave jumped up, made his salams to the people, and said, Friends, to any who rises of a morning in good health, God has granted blessings incalculable. Know, however, that man is a target of misfortune, and any who suffers misfortune should be patient, while any who enjoys good health should be grateful. Know, too, that in its day this ape that you see among you was the handsomest of youths, and that he is the son of King So-and-so, ruler of the island of such-and-such. Glory be to him who has stripped him of both good looks and princely status. Moreover, there was none in his day with a more merciful heart or more obedient to God Almighty. The believer, though, is subject to God's foreordained decrees. Now his father married him to the daughter of King So-and-so, and he lived with her for such and such a length of time. The men then passed word to her that he'd fallen in love with one of his slave boys. She asked him about this, and he swore to God there was no truth to the matter, so she let him be. Later she heard more to the same effect, was overtaken by the jealousy to which her sex is so prone, and, unable to bear it any longer, asked his permission to go and visit her family and her mother for two months. He granted her that permission and equipped her for the journey, in accordance with her status. When she reached her family, she cast a spell on him, as you can see. When he heard what had happened, the youth's father declared, This creature is an interloper among us kings, and ordered that he be driven from that region of the world. And so he was. Now his wife has come begging to us, as well as all the other kings, claiming that she left furnishings at his house worth 100,000 gold pieces, and she refuses to restore him to his former shape till she has been paid that sum. The kings have all banded together and helped him, each and every one contributing something, and he has sent her 90,000 gold pieces, leaving him with 10,000 still to pay. Who will help him with some part of that amount? Who will have mercy on this youth, whose princely status, family, and homeland have all been lost to him, and who has been changed from his true form into that of this ape? Throughout all this, the ape, handkerchief to face, wept tears like rain. Everyone's heart was moved, and each gave him something, and by the time he left the mosque, he'd collected a tidy sum. The man took him all over town, pulling the same ruse. Wise up to these things, and be alert to the cunning and deceitful deeds of the Banu Sassan. By Finsterwalde, sagt man, leben noch Freunde. Die halten aus, die sagen, sie bleiben dabei. Trotz Fensterwalde, 
haben sie Träume. Hell wie der Himmel, dort selten ist. Hinter dem Feld, nach dem Spiel, gehört der Abend den Gardinen. In der Wald schweigt sich aus und dann ist irgendwann Ruhe. Und wenn alles wieder schief geht, geht die Sonne trotzdem auf. Auf dem brachgelegten Acker, wo die Krähen Urlaub machen. This has been a preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. To hear the rest, please head on down to patreon.com slash irregnata, that is unruled in Latin, feminine, singular, or just search the Kingless Generation, maybe. And uh, for a low proletarian price, you can become an anointed member, join the Discord server, and receive access to our entire back catalog of episodes. Uh, you support, by doing this, an independent podcast with uh, very unique content, I'd like to think. And uh, you can also join a community of like-minded people. Uh, let's get some uh, conspiration, conspiracia, uh, going together. <laughs>